Good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming out this morning. And for those of you who were here last night, thank you for spending that time. Last night, we sort of got started. Um, we began by um, looking at some common threads that we see, um, uh, particularly having to do with um, cults and false religions. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, gives us three markers uh, that he used to identify false apostles who had infiltrated the church. And we looked at um, those who proclaim another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. And that those are three good markers for us to lay beside any kind of belief system. And we used Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, and Islam as three examples that we laid those beside. And we saw that they all have a high view of Jesus, they all have a belief in the Holy Spirit, and they all have a concept of a gospel or a plan of salvation, but that in every case across the board, they were unbiblical in their views of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the gospel. And then we also spent a little bit of time looking at the condition of the lost person. Um, if there are about four and a half billion people who are outside of Christianity, and that's not to say everybody who claims to be a Christian is, but even if we counted them, uh, there's about four and a half billion people around the globe who are outside the kingdom of God. How can those many people be wrong? And so we looked at several passages of scripture that give us an idea of the state of the unbeliever, that the unbeliever is blinded by Satan, that the unbeliever is bound. Uh, they're a natural person, that is, they don't have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. They're alienated from God. They're enemies of God. They stand under condemnation because they have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They're in spiritual darkness and they're spiritually dead. And so that sounds like a very dark and hopeless place to be, but the good news is God didn't leave us there. He sent his son who came and died on the cross for us and there is power in the word of God and the gospel message and we talked a little bit about the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit uh, acts upon that human spirit, that unbelieving human spirit to convince the unbeliever of sin, specifically the sin of unbelief or the sin of rejection of the person and work of Christ. Um, about righteousness, that is my righteousness as a human being is not sufficient to earn forgiveness of sins or gain merit with God, but it's the righteousness of Christ to whom we must appeal. And then the Holy Spirit convinces the unbeliever of judgment. That is, Satan has been judged. Uh, his sentence has not yet been carried out, but hell was created for Satan and his demons. And Jesus warns that those who persist in their rebellion against God will receive the same eternal punishment that Satan does. So we kind of laid the groundwork uh, for that last night, and today what we're going to do in our first session this morning is we're going to look at some common threads that run through world religions, including Christianity. Uh, and then in our, after we'll take a break, and then in our second session we're going to look at Hinduism, and then after lunch, we'll come back and look at Buddhism, and then we'll wrap up the day by looking at Scientology. Um, so each of you should have one of these little booklets 
And if you don't, there are more at the back of the auditorium, and we'll work through the worksheets uh, together. And so this morning, in our first session, uh, we'll start on page 9, which is session number 3, and common threads in world religions. But why don't we start with a word of prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for giving us this day. Thank you for the privilege we have of meeting together and spending some time uh, looking at what your word teaches, not only about true doctrine, but also those who embrace false doctrine. We pray, Father, that we would be clear in what we believe uh, and what we understand your word to teach And, Father, while we encounter those who have unbiblical views, particularly unbiblical views about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the gospel, that uh, we would uh, defend the faith, but we would do so with gentleness and respect. And, uh, Father, that um, as we seek to persuade people about the truth of the gospel, that we would do so in a way that's very winsome and attractive, And, Father, leave the results up to you as you send your Holy Spirit to convict them of their need for Christ. Thank you for each person here this morning. We pray we'll have a great time of fellowship and study together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're going to look at some common threads in world religions. And, uh, Anita, if you would advance to the next slide. What you're seeing up there on the board is a church known as Our Lady of Remedy. Um, Our Lady of Remedies is in Cholula, Mexico. Uh, Cholula, Mexico is a community just outside Puebla, which is a large uh, city in south-central Mexico. In fact, uh, Missouri Baptists have a partnership with Baptists in the state of Puebla, and the adjoining state of Tlaxcala. So if you fly into the Puebla airport, you can see that mountain in the background, and not far from the airport is Our Lady of Remedies in Cholula. Now what you may not realize is that that church, while it appears to be on top of a hill, uh, is in fact uh, built on top of the largest archaeological site in the Americas. That church is not really on a natural hill. That church is built on an Aztec pyramid. And uh, beneath that uh, overgrowth there, uh, there is a pyramid and there are catacombs and all sorts of things that run underneath it. And according to uh, a number of accounts, what happened was when... uh, the Spanish conquistador, Hernan Cortes, uh, came and conquered the Aztecs. Um, They were not particularly happy about being a conquered people, and they rebelled. And so to teach them a lesson, Cortes uh, commanded them, ordered them to build 365 Catholic churches. And if you ever get the opportunity to go to Cholula, you'll see that that is one of many, many Catholic churches in the area. There seems like there's a Catholic church on every street corner. Now, they didn't quite reach the goal of 365, uh, but the Aztecs got the point, or should have gotten the point, 
and that is that they were a conquered people and Roman Catholicism was going to build um, its religion on top of the ruins of the Aztec faith. Now the Aztecs should have understood that because they had come in previously and conquered other people and built their religious shrines right on top of those. And uh, uh, an interesting side note really is that none of the religions there really maintained their purity. Uh, the Aztecs, when they built on top of the people they conquered, sort of mixed some of the beliefs of the indigenous people there with theirs. And Roman Catholicism, particularly in Latin America, oftentimes mixes some of the indigenous faiths along with them. And so there's a great deal of superstition and in some cases some paganism uh, that gets mixed in with that. And so uh, that really leads to what's known as a trend in syncretism. And syncretism is really the merging of a variety of different beliefs. And on your worksheet, number one, it says syncretism is the melding of many religious views. It promotes the idea that all views with respect to faith are equally valid. And so in our culture today, it's politically correct to say that my views may be different from your views, but it's practically a hate crime to say my views are truer than your views are, or my views are true and your views are false. That's one of the results of syncretism. Um, and there are today many modern day churches like uh, our, our Lady of the Remedies. Uh, for example, Roman Catholicism uh, is built largely on tradition uh, over scripture. Uh, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, two American originals, really are built by false prophets who rejected the orthodox Christianity that they were exposed to and followed their own beliefs and practices and established them and called them true Christianity. And much of mainline Protestantism uh, today uh, that we see um, is really little more than an ancient pyramid uh, over which they have built uh, liberal philosophies, uh, universalism, naturalism, and humanism. So let's look at number two on our worksheet talking about syncretism. Mohandas Gandhi once declared, quote, belief in one God is the cornerstone of all religions. So Gandhi believed that belief in one God is the cornerstone of all religions. Number three, the Dalai Lama says the essential message of all religions is very much the same, very much the same. Number four, like Our Lady of Remedies in Mexico, many religious organizations are built on top of previous ones, thus declaring themselves superior. A, Roman Catholicism is built largely on tradition rather than scripture. 
B, the LDS Church is built on Joseph Smith's false claim of restoring an apostate Christian church to apostolic faithfulness. And C, the Watchtower is built on false interpretations of Scripture, the false establishment of an earthly governing body, and the release of a badly translated Bible. The New World Translation of the Scriptures is a sanitized version of the Bible, which makes it very difficult to find the deity of Christ or salvation by grace through faith. Okay. Uh, it is today politically incorrect if you and I state with any conviction that there is one true and living God that sin is man's problem, uh, that Jesus is coming back physically and visibly one day to judge all things, that heaven and hell are real, uh, that every person one day will stand before God in judgment, that homosexuality is sinful behavior, and that Jesus is the only way of salvation. If you say that today, declare that publicly, uh, you may be charged with a hate crime. Uh, you certainly will not make friends and influence people. Nevertheless, uh, those are biblical truths uh, that God has revealed to us. And just like God, who is unchanging in his nature and character, his revealed truth is unchanging and enduring as well. All right. If you would go to the next slide, in 2007, uh, President George W. Bush did an interview with Al Arabiya Television, and uh, they basically asked him the question whether um, Christianity and Islam were compatible, and you can see the quote up there that he gave them, and he said, well, I believe in an almighty God, and I believe that all the world whether they be Muslim, Christian, or any other religion, prays to the same God. Now, I have a great deal of respect for President Bush. I think he did a lot of great things uh, in, uh, during his time, and I think I know where he was coming from here. Uh, this was not terribly long after 9-11, and there's a lot of tension between Muslims and non-Muslims, and I think he was trying to give some calming and soothing words, uh, some compassionate words, and some words that would bring us together. But the simple truth of the matter is that that is a false statement. Christians and Muslims do not worship the same God. Uh, Muslims worship a God who is singular and monolithic. He is unknowable, he is unapproachable, and he is non-relational. Uh, we cannot know Allah. We can only know his will. And to say that Allah has a son, or to say that Jesus is the son of God, is to commit the unpardonable sin of shirk, which will damn your soul to hell. That does not sound anything remotely like the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, we, uh, we know to be one God who exists as three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal persons, Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. One being, one essence in three persons. And those three persons have always lived in a relationship with one another. They act in perfect agreement with one another. God is personal. God is knowable. God is relational. He doesn't just reveal his will. He reveals himself. And he most dramatically revealed himself in the person and the work of Jesus Christ who left the glory of heaven 2,000 years ago and came to earth added to his deity, sinless humanity, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and rose from the dead so that we could be brought back into a right relationship with our holy God. God created us for relations because he is by nature a relational God. And so we do not worship the same God um, despite President Bush's good intentions. Now, let's look at one passage of Scripture together. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And let's start in, uh, let's just read in verse 11 here. Paul, in this section, is talking about us as believers who will stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. Um, And leading up to that, he says in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 3, for no one can lay any other foundation than what's been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. And so while we see the church of the Lady of Remedies being built on top of an Aztec pyramid, which was built on top of previous religions, uh, there is a foundation that underlies everything, a foundation of truth, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. And so we have to get Jesus right. Uh, We have to know who he is. We have to properly answer the question that Jesus asked in Matthew 16, whom do you say that I am? And he is the foundation of all truth. And so that is what we are going to go on. And then he says, we'll be held accountable for what we build on that foundation. If we as believers build gold, silver, and precious stones. In other words, if our labors in the Lord, if the stewardship we have of all that God has given us is good when it goes through the fires of judgment before the judgment seat of Christ, what does fire do to gold, silver, and precious stones? It purifies them. It makes them more valuable, more gleaming, more precious. But what does fire do to wood, hay, and stubble? Works that we have done selfishly or disobediently to God they will be consumed. And so Paul is establishing uh, his teaching on the judgment seat of Christ, reminding us that the foundation of our faith is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So we have to ask ourselves, how are we building on that foundation of Christ? And we need to build on that with the truth of There's one true and living God who is triune, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God uh, via the miracle of the virgin birth. He added to that deity sinless humanity, that Jesus lived a sinless life, that Jesus' death on the cross was his sacrificial and substitutionary death in our place, that he satisfied the wrath of God, and in so doing extended to us God's grace and mercy, that he finished the work of redemption on the cross, that he rose 
physically from the dead on the third day, that today he's seated at the right hand of the Father as our mediator and our intercessor, and that he's coming back one day visibly, physically, and personally in power and great glory to fulfill all things. We need to build our Christian doctrine on that foundation of Jesus Christ. You and I were talking about John MacArthur a little while ago. I was listening to one of his messages uh, a while back where he said, of course he has a radio ministry, and he got a letter from one of the Christian channels that his materials appear on, and apparently everybody who um, bought airtime on this Christian network received this same letter. And so Dr. MacArthur shared a part of what the letter said. Let me just read you a little part of what it said. It says, quote, this broadcasting network wants to be a good neighbor to the variety of listeners. And then it listed the kinds of listeners in its audience. Therefore, when you are preparing your program for these stations, please avoid using the following. Criticism of other religions. Terms like conversion, missionaries, believers, unbelievers, old covenant, new covenant, church, the cross, crucifixion, Calvary, Christ, the blood of Christ, salvation through Christ, redemption through Christ, the Son of God, Jehovah, or the Christian life. Be a very short message. You're absolutely right. The letter then went on to say this, quote, these people, their listening audience, are hungering for words of comfort. We ask you to adhere to these restrictions so that God's word can continue to go forth. Please help us maintain our position of bringing comfort to this suffering people. Can you imagine that? A Christian network asking you uh, not to proclaim the foundational truths of the Christian faith. And I like the way uh, Dr. MacArthur responded to that. He said, that's not comfort. He said, that's damnation. He said, not to proclaim sin and its remedy, not to proclaim Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, he said, can only lead to one thing, and that's for people not to come to faith in Christ. So obviously he had some objection uh, to the requests that the network gave him. All right. Um, a few years back, Stephen Prothrow uh, wrote a book uh, that is called God is Not One. Now Prothrow is a Roman Catholic. Um, he teaches in uh, New England, uh, but his book uh, it was a bestseller, and I got it when it came out, and it was very, uh, very interesting. Um, and the subtitle of his book is Eight Rival Religions That Run the World and Why Their Differences Matter. Now, Prothero's not an evangelical Christian, uh, but I do think we owe him a debt of gratitude for this book because in the midst, particularly of a time where people are saying, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere. We all worship the same God. All paths lead to the 
mountain peak. Uh, Prothero had the courage at least to come out and say, wrong, uh, they don't. There's a significant difference between Hinduism and Islam and Shintoism and Christianity. And so in each of his chapters, he tells us sort of the basic beliefs of these eight major religions throughout the world. And he said there are four common threads that run through these beliefs. And let me back up a minute so we stay caught up on our worksheet. Let's see, we did number five, right? George W. Bush shared his belief that everyone, whether Muslim, Christian, or any other religion, prays to the same God. Number six, in contrast, the Apostle Paul writes that no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid, that is, Jesus Christ. And now, number seven here, in this best-selling book, God is Not One, Stephen Prothero writes that all the world's major religions address four common issues. There is, first of all, a problem, and that is, if you ask people, what is, what is wrong with the world? Almost everyone will agree that something is wrong with the world. So what is it? What is the problem with the world? Uh, last night, for example, we looked at Islam a little bit, and Islam says man's problem is ignorance or pride. Uh, ignorance of Islam and pride by not submitting to Allah. Christians, of course, would say man's problem is sin. So what is the problem? What's wrong with the world? Number two, a solution. Okay, if we identify the problem, how do we fix it? Number three, a technique. In other words, if we're going to fix it, what process do we go through to fix it? And number four is a, an exemplar, or who can show us the way uh, to uh, fixing or providing a solution to that problem. And so let's take a couple examples here. One would be uh, Islam. Okay? In Islam, what is the problem? Well, our Muslim friends would tell us our problem is ignorance of Islam, or more specifically, our problem is pride. It is our refusal to submit to the revealed will of Allah. So that's mankind's problem. Muslims don't really place a lot of emphasis on sin, uh, and that's why they they don't think Jesus needed to die on the cross for our sins. In fact, they say he didn't die. Allah took him off of the cross and put somebody else there because uh, sin's not man's problem. Okay, Man's problem is pride, a refusal to submit to Allah. So if that's the problem in Islam, what is the solution? Well, the solution is submission. And we're on number eight on page 10. The solution is submission, and that is submitting to the revealed will of Allah as given in the Quran, uh, the Hadith, which are the words and the practices of Muhammad, uh, and the Sirah, the biography or the life of Muhammad. The technique in Islam is the five pillars. Remember we talked about those last night, the Shahada, that profession of faith, there is no God but Allah, 
and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah by stating that publicly and sincerely to another Muslim, you have just converted to Islam. But it doesn't stop there. Then you have to do Salat, which are the cycles of prayer repeated five times every day, preceded by a, a, a washing or a cleansing before you handle the Quran and get involved in prayer. And then there is uh, zakat, or almsgiving. You have to give a percentage of your income uh, to purify the rest. And then there's Ramadan, that 30-day uh, daytime fasting that commemorates the giving of the Quran to Allah. And then there's the hajj, or the pilgrimage, which every able-bodied and financially able person must do at least once in their lifetime, traveling to Mecca and taking part in a multiple day ceremonies uh, focused around the Kaaba, that cube-shaped structure where Muhammad cleansed um, the uh, uh, Mecca and the Arabian Peninsula of all of the tribal gods and established Allah, the God, as the one true God who was to be worshipped. And then the exemplar or the example is Muhammad. In fact, Muhammad is referred to as the perfect man. And that doesn't mean Muhammad is sinless because even the Quran says that Muhammad had to ask Allah to forgive him at various times. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, Muslims believe that Jesus was sinless, Muhammad was not, and yet Muhammad is the seal of the prophets. He is a more important prophet than Jesus was. Uh, Muhammad didn't perform any miracles, and Jesus did, and yet Muhammad is the seal of the prophets. Muhammad wasn't born of a virgin, but Jesus was. Nevertheless, Muhammad is still the perfect man. So in other words, if you're a Muslim and you want to know how should I live my life, Muhammad is the perfect example for how a person should live his or her life. So that's uh, a look at Islam and how those four um, standards that Stephen Prothrow points out, those four common threads that run through the world's major religions, that's how Islam would answer those four points. Now, let's look at Buddhism briefly, and that's number nine on page 10, and we're going to look at Buddhism in a little more detail later on this morning. But in Buddhism, what is man's problem? Well, it's not sin. Man's problem is suffering. And more specifically, they would say suffering that is caused by craving. Because we have cravings or desires, those lead uh, to suffering. So suffering is the problem that must be overcome. So what is the solution? Well, a solution is awakening, or you could say enlightenment. As the Buddha achieved enlightenment, or awakening, uh, that is the path that Buddhists seek as well. Uh, and that is to free them of the craving that causes suffering. And when they do so, they become free. What's the technique? So in other words, how do they become enlightened? How do they become awakened? They become awakened through the noble eightfold path. And we'll look at that 
a little bit later today. And who are the exemplars? Who are the examples of how to do that? In Buddhism, there are different exemplars depending on what type of Buddhism you follow. There are arhats, or perfected ones. There are bodhisattvas, compassionate ones, people who have attained enlightenment, but rather than leave this realm, they stay behind to help other people along. Or lamas, who are spiritual leaders or gurus. Lamas, L-A-M-A-S. Not the animal, but the person. A guru or a lama with one L, uh, like the Dalai Lama. Okay? So you can see how Islam and Buddhism are really significantly different in how they identify man's problem, the solution, how the solution is applied, and who sets the example for us. So now let's look at number 10 on page 10 for Christianity. What is the problem in Christianity? Well, the problem is sin. Uh, We believe the Bible is very clear that every human being is conceived in sin. We have a natural tendency to live independently of God, and we do that. Uh, And sin separates us from a holy God. We stand condemned. We stand under the wrath of God. We're in spiritual darkness. We're bound by Satan. Uh, We are in a precarious position because of our sin. Sin is man's problem. Now, what is the solution? Well, the solution is salvation. And all that that, um, you know, that that uh, entails, uh, salvation being you know, the finished work of Christ, that God sent his son who came, uh, who experienced full humanity without sacrificing his deity, and having lived a perfect and sinless life, he offered that up on the cross and bore the full wrath of our sins, paid those sins in full, then rose physically from the dead on the third day to conquer Satan's sin and death for us and to provide us with a way to come back into a right relationship with God, that God's plan of salvation is God's solution for sin. And it's God's solution, not man's solution. You and I don't do anything in order to um, earn that or to merit that. And so uh, what is the technique then? The technique really is faith. Uh, You and I don't do the noble eightfold path. We don't do the five pillars of Islam. Uh, We don't uh, become part of a kingdom hall and go door to door in the hopes that perhaps one day Jehovah will resurrect us and find us faithful. Rather, we plead the blood of Jesus. We trust that his finished work on the cross satisfied the wrath of God and we receive by faith the forgiveness and the restoration that's provided in Jesus Christ. And then, the exemplar, of course, is none other than Jesus himself. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Now, it's interesting, in Prothero's book, um, while I really enjoyed reading it and I learned a lot, when he gets to his chapter on Christianity uh, as a Roman Catholic, 
he answers these questions a little different. He starts by saying man's problem is sin. Okay, so far so good. Uh, the solution to man's problem is salvation. Again, so far so good. But then what's the technique? How do we receive salvation? And then he goes into a lengthy explanation of a combination of faith and works, uh, the sacramental system and uh, the fountain of merit in heaven that we have to draw from to make sure we stay uh, in a state of grace and all of that. So he would say salvation is achieved by a combination of faith and works. So there we would part company with Stephen Prothrow and say we agree, sin is man's problem, salvation is the solution, but I can't do anything about it. It's all on God. I receive that by faith. And then he said the exemplars, this was interesting. I would have thought he'd say, well, Jesus is the exemplar. But he says the exemplars include saints in Roman Catholicism and ordinary people of faith in Protestantism. Well, I'm not going to hitch my salvation to any human being, no matter how good that person is. And so we would part company with Prothrow there. Uh, I had a hard time getting through his chapter on Christianity because I don't think he answered those four questions quite correctly. So anyway, you get an idea, I think, um, about these four common threads that run through religions, uh, that there is a problem, uh, whether you're going to look at Islam or even if you're going to look at counterfeit forms of Christianity like Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witnesses, they would, they would answer those four questions. What is man's problem? What's the solution? How do I get there? And who is the person who sets the perfect example for me? And they might even answer them the same way we do. They might say sin is man's problem, salvation is the solution, and uh, I get there by faith, um, and Jesus is the exemplar. But, as we talked about last night, um, for Jehovah's Witnesses, they say you have to exercise your faith. Well, what does that mean? It means I have to work. So salvation really is achieved through a combination of faith and works. Mormons would say, yeah, you're saved by grace through faith. That just means general resurrection. But then there's individual salvation, which is totally of works. So sometimes when we ask those four questions, we have to drill down a little bit deeper and say, what do you mean by that? How does that play out? Uh, how does your religious organization uh, take care of that and deal with that? So anyway, what are we to make uh, out of all of this? Uh, well, we could see in the beginning how uh, Our Lady of Remedies uh, came to be, uh, built on top of an Aztec pyramid, which was built on top of other religions, and how those sort of bleed into each other in what's known as syncretism. And we see that happening today, not only in counterfeit forms of Christianity, but even, unfortunately, in some of our mainline denominations, which are allowing secularism and humanism to bleed in and affect what they do. And so what you and I need to do is really stand on that true foundation. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.11, uh, that you cannot lay any other foundation than what has been laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. And so for us as believers, uh, we need to continue uh, to stand on that truth of the gospel 
that there is one true and living God who exists as three distinct co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, that man's problem is sin and it separates us from the triune Godhead, but that God didn't leave us there. He sent his son, born of a virgin, uh, who lived a perfect and sinless life as the God-man, fully divine and fully human, tempted in every way we're tempted, yet without sin, and that on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And having done so, having finished that work on the cross, rising from the dead on the third day, ascending into heaven, and awaiting his return one day to fulfill all things, what do we do about it? Well, the sin problem has been solved in Christ. We need to receive him by faith and then build upon that foundation of Christ with the time, the talents, the opportunities, the spiritual gifts, the resources that God has given to us, knowing that while we cannot lose our salvation, our stewardship as believers will be called into account one day when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, let me stop there and give you a little bit of time to ask questions or um, share comments before we have our first break today. Anybody have questions or comments? Yeah, every, every belief system, whether it's a religion like Hinduism or Buddhism or whether it's a counterfeit form of Christianity like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses have authority and that authority may be written authority like the Bible. Uh, in the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, they have their own translation of the Bible, the New World Translation, which has sanitized the deity of Christ. It is extremely hard to find the deity of Christ in the Jehovah's Witness Bible. They've changed John 1.1. They've changed uh, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, they've changed Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, and so they, but they would say they believe the Bible is the word of God. Je uh, Mormons would say we believe in the King James Version of the Bible insofar as it's translated correctly. In other words, they believe that the Bible has been corrupted by apostate Christians, and so they have to go with the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. They would also say the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price are uh, equally valid and inspired as well. So they have a, a wider stable of written revelation, plus their president is the living prophet, seer, and revelator who can receive new revelation. Uh, Hindus and Buddhists have a variety of, of written and oral traditions that they follow as well. But to your point, yeah, they all have, whether it's an oral tradition or whether it's something written, they would consider that to be authoritative. You had a comment? Yeah, people, to your point, people who embrace Hinduism or Buddhism obviously were either raised in that faith or converted to it at some point. And as we mentioned last night, they're seeking the truth. They believe they found the truth, and they're going, it's going to be very difficult to shake them from that. And that's why last night we talked about the, the necessity of the word of God, which is God's revealed truth, um, and then the work of the Holy Spirit, 
that because the unbeliever is blinded and bound and alienated from God and in the kingdom of darkness and all of those other things, that it takes the Holy Spirit to come in and, and illuminate that person's heart and draw them to faith in Christ. So you're right, it's very, very difficult to get anybody really to receive the gospel message. We can persuade, we can share the truth, but at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit's the one who really has to drill in there and enlighten and draw them to faith in Christ. Right. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. When you say, you know, boy, it's really going to be difficult to change this Jehovah's Witness or this Mormon. You think, okay, well, how hard would it be for them to change me? I'm very convinced that I have found the truth based upon the Word of God, and for them to convince me otherwise would take a whole lot, uh, and I think it's impossible. Uh, so uh, to kind of think about it from that point of view shows the, the, really the necessity of the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, because otherwise it's impossible. Yeah. Other thoughts, questions, or comments? Uh, in Islam, for example, um, uh, and just to repeat your question, um, uh, uh, other uh, belief systems do not identify sin as the problem. Um, what do they consider sin to be? Uh, Islam, for example, uh, believes in sin. They don't believe sin is man's problem, but they believe sin is basically just sort of a lapse. It's kind of like, I forgot to turn the dishwasher on. I'm sorry, next time I'll turn the dishwasher on. And that it's easily forgiven, and oftentimes by doing some kind of very simple and basic works within Islam, your sins are overlooked or forgiven. So sin is really not... Sin is sort of just a lapse. Um, it's a weakness. Uh, it's not the root problem in mankind. In um, Hinduism and Buddhism, sin really doesn't come up uh, very much at all because um, uh, there, there are behaviors that are prescribed if you want to get out of the cycle of life, death, and reincarnation, or in Buddhism, life, death, and rebirth. And... Um, Having good behaviors and avoiding bad behaviors helps move you down the road, but at the end of the day, sin is not really your core problem. So they would focus more on good behavior, bad behavior, without really looking at it as being an offense against a holy God, because their whole concept of God is different. 